we're going to continue going after blind spot markets, what we call blind spot markets. So it's markets that collectively they're big enough. So when you look at the town, it's the equivalent of an Italy or a Germany. But the profit pools are much, much better because these are kind of neglected by the big guys. So it gives us an opportunity to go and disrupt with a good beta, if you like. It will always take longer than you think. It will always cost you more in terms of frustration and capital. When you think about entrepreneurs in parts of the world like ours, I think the problem set is very different. It's less about competition and competitive powers. It's more about can you make it and can you survive in a much more uncertain environment? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoy this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. And you can also check out past episodes on our Substack. In this episode, we head all the way to Athens, Greece. I sit down with Alexis Pantasis, co-founder of Hellas Direct, a full-stack insure tech with operations in Greece, Cyprus, and Romania. Launched in Athens about a decade ago, Hellas Direct now generates over $150 million in annual revenue and has raised 56 million of equity and debt from Portage, ThirdPoint, the World Bank, Endeavor Catalyst, and many other great investors. In this episode, Alexis gives us a masterclass of what they've learned from launching new products and countries over the last decade, their strategy of going after blind spot markets to increase market dominance and reduce competition, dealing with fraud why it's so important to modernize the insurance industry, and a lot more. Alexis, welcome to FinTech Leaders. What's going on? Joining all the way from Athens? Yep, currently in Athens. Hi, Miguel, long time. I think last time we spoke, there was this thing going COVID going around. It's good to reconnect. And thank you for hosting me at FinTech Leaders. Fantastic to be here. Absolutely. It's an honor. I very much enjoyed our last podcast back when I was with Wharton Fintech. So excited to hear about all the good things that have been happening for Hellas Direct and for you guys. So let's just jump right into some of the learnings and some of the action that's going on. Because you, you've been building the company for over a decade, and maybe you can tell us a bit about that timeline. But when you started, not a lot of companies were looking to modernize the insurance industry, insurtech. I'm not sure if it was a word back then. So no, debate whether there's an E or no E in insurtech back then. Has that debate been settled? I, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> like the Oxford comma in English. But by context, then just kicking off the discussion, some of the audience probably don't know who we are, so I'll give you a little bit of background there. Together with Emilius, my co-founder, we started Last Direct back in 2011. The thinking at the time was very much a contrarian play. We were both working in finance in London. We met at Goldman Sachs. 
We started getting the itch of entrepreneurship and starting your own thing at the same time. And I think we've been very fortunate to do that. And the, the opportunity that was, we saw was that the whole, I would say, Southern Eastern Europe region was about to blow up. You could see that Greece was getting at the beginning of the financial crisis. That crisis ended up being the longest and deepest financial crisis in the Western world. And a lot of the economies around here, whether it's Romania, whether it's Bulgaria, whether it's Macedonia, all of these markets were more or less geared up on the Greek economy. When you look at banking, energy, telco, they were all Greek. So when we saw that with Amelia, we were like, okay, this is going to blow up. This is potentially an interesting disruptive opportunity here. Emilius, my background is an actuary. It was always an insurance. I was on the principal side of the firm, but I had very little to do with insurance at the time. So the thesis was very simple. Coming to a market that is about to go in disarray, bring fresh capital, set up a clean operation from scratch with no legacy sins, no investment losses of the past, no legacy technology systems. Leverage, if you can, on technology and data in order to become a better underwriter. And from our perspective, become a fully regulated insurance company. And along the way, we've done a few things right. Like any startup, we've done many things wrong. And from our perspective, lessons, I guess, in the early days, and then we'll come back to the later days. In the early days, timing, you can never get it right 100%, but having a good understanding of the trend lines rather than the headlines, as they say, is probably a good thing. For us, the fact that we brought fresh capital in the market in disarray was definitely the right thing to do. You can always argue that we maybe were a little bit too early, but I think we were fine in the longer term. The second decision we've taken right, we brought in and we built our own technology. We looked at any off-the-shelf solutions at the time. This was, as you said, early days in InsureTech. There were not that many flexible companies out there to work with. And most of the solutions that existed were really legacy systems of insurance companies that existed that they were trying to just offload them or sell them as a service or something like that. And I think one of the right decisions we've taken was that it's such a volatile market and technology is changing so fast that you need to control this. And this needs to be an asset, a competitive strength of yours. So building our own technology was difficult because neither of us is a technology guy, but we became technology guys. But I think that's something that was definitely a right decision. And the third one, if I were to identify a third one, was from our perspective, we realized early on what we shouldn't be doing. And in the case of Greece, trying to do too many things at the same time probably is a destruction. So we said, we're going to start with motor, auto insurance. That is 80% of the market. Don't try to do life and health and complicated stuff at that point in time and try to become fully vertically integrated and very, very solid on your full stack as it became later known. Now, on the learnings, on things we did wrong in the beginning, we were quite dogmatic coming into the market that we're going to be a direct player, go direct to consumer. That's obviously the most efficient way of getting to a consumer. You collect a lot of data so you can do better pricing, but you have to respect distribution idiosyncrasies in every market. So right now we're distribution agnostic and we realized that early on, thankfully. So two, three years after we launched, we got onto aggregators. We're now dominating the aggregator space. We then got into physical brokers, physical distribution networks. About 75% of the distribution in Greece is still with these guys. And we said, let's treat them as clients. Let's digitalize them, use data to give them a better service, a better offering. And let's work with them to the point that we've actually invested in some of them. So we're doing a mini roll-up of brokers like Intact does in Canada. Other things that we've done wrong and we learned from fairly quickly is that in a volatile economic environment like Greece, at the time you had unemployment of more than 30%, a drop in GDP of 30%, youth unemployment more than 65%. When you look at these metrics and you compare them to Latin America, you typically had a put it down a change in government. So 
there was obviously debate about Brexit and Greece exiting the European Union at the time, and well, more specifically, the Eurozone at the time. When you're dealing in an environment like this one, you cannot just take too many risks in spending money left, right, and center. So your unit economics need to be solid. And I think one of the key learnings from the very beginning is that we would never make it unless we became very, very, very good underwriters. So our loss ratio, when you look at it in the last four or five years, even if you exclude COVID, is in the 50s and 60s, which is when you compare to other insure techs out there that I keep reporting above 100% loss ratios, we are going after profitable markets and we're trying to be operationally more efficient. So where are we now in our journey? With regards to Greece, we're probably the sixth largest player. Most of our competitors update players like Allianz, like Grubama, Generali, some private equity, CBC, both one of the biggest insurance companies here. So those are the people we compete with. On the product side, we've launched home insurance as well. So we're following the consumer and what they need, especially in markets like Greece. You probably saw it in the news. There's a lot of fires going around, wildfires, there's flooding, there's earthquakes. Turkey had a nasty earthquake at the beginning of the year. So I think from our side, we want to get more and more into that. It's part of the whole climate change theme that we see taking a view in the insurance and insurtech world. And we've recently expanded internationally. So we've gone to Romania in November last year. We're going to continue going after blind spot markets, what we call blind spot markets. So it's markets that collectively they're big enough. So when you look at the town, it's the equivalent of an Italy or a Germany. But the profit pools are much, much better because these are kind of neglected by the big guys. So it gives us an opportunity to go and disrupt with a good beta, if you like. So Alex, when you look at other markets, especially in fintech and tech, oftentimes what happens is you have a, a new technology company that injects some innovation into the market and then it kind of forces the rest of the market to catch up in some aspects, at least. Have you seen some of that with your competitors, with your with incumbents in, in Greece? Has the market changed in some way over the last decade since you've been going at it? I mean, hopefully we have served as an example and a role model to some of the innovation that came through. But pragmatically speaking, in markets like Greece, markets like Cyprus, Romania, the markets that we're going after, we are de facto the only digital enhanced player. So when you think about the competition, it's more incumbents. And when you're the um, when you're Allianz, when you're generally just to pick two names at random, and you're the CTO of these companies, or you're the chief data guy or the chief innovation guy in these firms, when you look down the list of countries, you're probably going to focus on your core markets, which is typically your home advantage. And you will also look at markets like Brazil, like India, fast growth, markets that can really make a huge difference to analysts globally. When you look at markets like Greece, Romania, and places like that, it takes so long to bring innovation from headquarters. And it's not as straightforward as just plucking in a platform and rolling it out. So I think a lot of people have realized that it's very hard to catch up with a regional player like ourselves. And I'm not saying that by no means in an arrogant way. I'm just saying it in a how paranoid we were early on that Allianz would wake up one day and they would do this and we're gone. But in reality, you see that locally, we can compete face-to-face. We would never have the, the guts to go and compete with them in Munich or in Trieste or whatever. But from, from our side, I, I think in the markets that we operate in, we feel that we've managed to introduce some innovation, which is very hard to compete against. One of the examples to give you, we were probably the first, market, the first company in Europe that introduced insurance by the day. This was a need for our consumers because they couldn't afford to pay the whole year. It was, as we said, the deepest financial crisis. So we said, okay, well, how much money do you have in your pocket? You have 32 euros. 
32 euros is good enough to buy 37 days of insurance. So we literally had a bar that you selected number of days. Nobody else could do that, right? They didn't have the technology to be able to cheapen the cost of renewal, the reminders, and this and that and the other to break down the unit of insurance from one year or six months, depending on the geography, to one day. Now, when you start looking at things like that on the claim side, we've done a lot of work on the claims. A lot of insurtechs, especially in the US, they will typically outsource claims. We're very much against that. Claims is the moment of truth, is the moment that your client needs you the most. And ultimately, that's the promise that we made to them, that when you crash, we're going to be there in the simplest form of it. So we internalized everything. We internalized a lot of these cost centers, turned them into profit pools internally, where ultimately you have a 24-7 technology-enabled team of our own. We don't believe that you can report a claim in an app and that's it. That's typically fraud. But these guys that answer the phone, they have a lot of technology on the fingertips. And from then on, we had to connect all the repair shops in Greece. We've digitalized the whole marketplace. We have about 3,000 repair shops sitting on our proprietary platform. So when you think about the innovation we brought into the market, I think we always kept pushing the innovation boundary a little bit more. How quickly others follow, I think, really depends on leadership and ability of headquarters to support them locally. You, you mentioned a little bit of this, but how do you deal with fraud? Because that is, I guess, a least talked about aspect, especially of auto insurance. I think fraud in any market, you have to understand what kind of fraud are you talking about. And repair shops will always defraud you up to some level. It's the nature of the game globally. And I think that's kind of priced in, similar to when you're Visa or MasterCard or something like that, you're going to be pricing in a certain element of fraud. You haven't had, at least we haven't had, huge fraudulent claims that would happen based on a, I don't know, a group of lawyers getting together and trying to defraud the company. So stuff that are a little bit more advanced in other markets, we haven't really seen. But I think it really comes down to data and underwriting. So I think the fact that we have a centralized data warehouse, we have a very good pricing team that will actually look at different parameters and try to price out risks that we don't want. That has been very helpful to us both in the Greek market and also in Romania. Romania, just to give you an idea of magnitude, within a year, we're as big in Romania, less than a year, as big in Romania as we are in Greece. So we're now around 150 million in revenue as a company. There was a dislocation in the Romanian market. There's only eight insurance companies now operating, and the two largest ones have been shut down by the regulators, mostly for fraud. So from our perspective, call it a bit of luck, a bit of good homework in advance. We managed to enter a market that premium have jumped up to the tune of 80%, 90%. We brought fresh capacity at the time that it was needed. So we almost repeated the same macro that was going on in Greece, but at a different level for different reasons. And that touch wood has been going really, really well so far. You were prepared to be lucky entering Romania, I guess. And tell us a bit about that experience, launching a second market where, you know, arguably, I, I know it's closed geographically, but still a different culture, different regulatory system. You know, what have been some of the learnings? I think from our side, we have uh, Luca, who is uh, heading our international expansion. He spent a couple of years of his life going around the world and trying to figure out which other markets that we should enter. And we looked at markets in seven different filters, ranging from digital adoption, regulatory framework, the market structure, the incumbents, strengths, what does the consumer really want, a number of these factors. And it was kind of obvious to us that there was a big dilemma in front of us as to which way we should go. Go for the big markets, much easier to raise money at the time. There was the insurtech friendliness of you know, throwing money at anything. Or go after markets which are long-term more sustainable and profitable and try to build a moat there. And the decision that we've taken early on was let's go for markets where we can justify to ourselves that we're going to be a top five player. 
within the first three, four years, and that we can lever our technology that we built in a way that is easy to passport cross-border. So they're all within the European Union, so we can passport a license. The technology, you never know until you try it, how transferable it is. I would say we're 80 or 90% transferable. And the only thing you really need to build locally is your claims team. Obviously, with the same infrastructure that we have in Greece and Cyprus, we invested a lot of money into that. But you need the locals. You need the local idiosyncrasies, the local understanding, the language, the customer service, and all that. But let's say pricing or regulatory reporting or asset management or other functions that you would do, including building your own tech, you can centralize that and you can do them out of anywhere. So back to your point, what were our observations? I think from a top-down, again, similar to the learnings from Greece, timing matters. You can never get it perfectly right, but timing does matter. You need to be in a market that you feel that the regulators are actually doing a good job. Because if you see somebody who's undercutting prices all the time and there's no repercussion on them doing so, if it's done in an uncompetitive way or fraudulent way, then obviously that's not a market that you can see yourself earning some market share with in a justifiable profitability way. But if it's a market where you just saw the regulator shutting down to players, that's usually a good signal. We saw the same in Greece when we were looking at that. So back to your point, I think there's a macro picture and a micro picture. If you can get the good sync up between the two, you know, we feel pretty confident we can do that in Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, Croatia in the next four years. So it's interesting to hear your thought process and the company's process on how to enter a new country. How about the process of launching new products? Because you, you mentioned you, you've gone to other types of insurance from auto. How is that process internally? I think there's any entrepreneur would tell you, and I, and I think when you meet entrepreneurs, it's always like kids in a candy store because they would always look around them and it's like, oh, that's a great idea. Why don't we look into that? And I think that's a temptation that both Emilius and I had to train ourselves not to fall into that trap. And our teams have been very good at managing that. So what we've done is we sat down as a team and we decided that, look, guys, let's start with the obvious. We're always going to be in the non-life space. So we're in PNC insurance rider. We're not life, we're not health. We can distribute life and health of somebody else's product, but we're not in that business. Now, from the people that we cater to, the biggest chunk is in the mobility ecosystem. And when you look at mobility, it's really cars and motorcycles. Beyond that, of course, you have some ancillaries where there's personal accident and legal protection and this and that, that you kind of expect it to have because your competition has it. So I'm not even considered that as a separate product. But the second ecosystem you're touching is home, housing. So when you look at the Greek market, again, much smaller than the US or Germany or the UK, you need to more or less do what the majority of your consumers would want you to do. And you can't really say, I'm going to pick a very specific niche of only doing fleet for delivery guys for Deliveroo. You cannot do that in a market like Greece and not Romania, et cetera. Now, for other products, once we decided what we're not going to do, and we excluded as well things that would love to do, like pet insurance and things like that. And we said, part that for now. If you're a mobility and housing player, the best thing you can do is just ask your customers what they want. And what we realized very early on is that the customers, they really appreciated that we've digitalized and we simplified insurance, but they also wanted other things that nobody was providing them. One of them was financing. When you think about the Greek market, because of the deepest and longest recession we talked about, the Greeks haven't replenished the car fleet. So the average car in Greece is 17 years old. The average one in Europe, just to give you a perspective, is 12. When you look at Germany, it's about seven. So when you look at that from a Greek perspective, they would have frequent breakdowns because the old banger has not been fixed for a long time. 
And the, you realize that the needs change. is less of a loss ratio driven, I'm crashing and I need help. But it's more of, I had a mechanical breakdown. Can you take me to a garage? And by the way, I don't have money to fix it. And that's two thirds of the Greeks. And to be fair, the unforeseen expense of $700 is actually the same with the US. So you get a random American and you say, do you have $700 unforeseen in this month's budget? Two thirds of the Americans will say, I cannot make ends meet until my next paycheck. So there's an opportunity there to offer financing solutions to the consumer. And given that we do control in a fully vertically integrated way, the customer journey, it was very easy for us to say, hey, you actually had a breakdown. Why don't I take you to a garage? I've got 3,000 digitally connected garages. I'll take you there. Why don't I take you there and actually give you financing to fix your car? And while you're at it, why don't we think about fixing your tires? Because they're old and scruffy and maybe that will cause an accident. Why don't we think about you know fixing some scratches you have? So we started offering financial solutions or credit from different balance sheet providers, different banks, local and international, to the consumer. Very similar to what, I guess, Creditas does in Latin America. So for us, we realized that rather than expanding aggressively into more and more insurance products, you need to think of your world as insurance, assistance services, and financial solutions, and be the ecosystem player, be the glue in between. And in most cases, financing is what's bringing everything together because the banks are so slow and so backward in being able to deliver that last mile service especially for small tickets. So we're now getting into car financing. We're getting into financing for your road taxes, your servicing your car. If we have built that last mile interface, the consumer already trusts us. So we've connected those two wells. Love it. So you're starting to build an, an ecosystem. Alexis, here's a, a question that for you, I'm sure the answer is very obvious, but why is modernizing the insurance industry so important? I mean, insurance is one of the oldest industries in the world. And I think people find it hard to capture the need for insurance sometimes. You look at home insurance as an example, only 16% of the homes in Greece are insured, despite the fact that we're in a seismic zone between two plates. There's earthquakes every now and then, there's fires and floods every single year. Yet again, people don't really appreciate the concept of risk pooling and bringing things together and all that. So in many cases, the government, the state will step up and saying, you, the citizen, cannot evaluate that. I will do it for you. I'm making it obligatory, like the case of driving a car. Now, why is it important to modernize? I think the world is changing. It always is. But I think the world is changing in a number of different dimensions. There's an abundance of data now. Cars are much safer. We are moving to a world where eventually we'll be self-driven cars. So there is a shift in risk pools over here. The consumer is much more educated, much more in control of their own destiny. And I think the consumer will always want a better deal, whether it's better service, better product, better price. And I think insurance companies need to be able to cater to that. One of the things I blame our industry in having done, especially companies that were born in the previous century, is that they forgot that they're here to serve their clients. They forgot that insurance at the end of the day is like any other product and you, the consumer, has a choice to go anywhere they want to go. So they outsource the customer service function to independent brokers, to call centers, to whatever. They outsource claims, which is the moment of truth, and that's what I still can't get my head around. And they became effectively lazy, passive asset managers. And in some cases, it works, especially in risks that are not that frequent and all that. But when you're dealing with motor insurance and somebody maybe on the side of the street having just crashed with two kids that are crying and somebody who's injured, you better be there. <laughs> so I think back to your point, why is it important to modernize insurance? 
I don't think it's important to modernize insurance for the sake of it, technology for the sake of technology, but it's important for the sector to catch up with some of the trends that other companies, whether it's Netflix, Google, Meta, Spotify, whatever, have already done in their worlds. It's important to get steal the best ideas from there, not just them to our customer journeys. And I think insurance companies and banks have been very, very, very bad at doing that historically. And clearly this story has resonated with investors. I know in the past we've talked about kind of a little bit of your journey of raising capital, both from European investors, but also global investors from outside of Europe. Maybe share a bit of that story of, of raising from VCs and angel investors. When we first started with Emilios, we were super naive. We said, okay, we've got some great resumes, good degrees in the world, like Wharton's and Cambridge and this and then the other. And we're just going to go find five shipping guys, the stereotype idea of a multi-billionaire who's just going to say, sure, you need a million here, it is started. That obviously didn't happen. We spoke to some VCs back then. This was before they insured tech forensic. So they said, no way I would invest in a balance sheet play. What are you talking about? I love your technology. Happy to do stuff with it, but not balance sheet. And at the time, we ended up with family offices. And again, to put it in the context of time, our first slide for our investment deck when we're starting was Reese is screwed. Here's a bunch of broken eggs as a visual. And we're here asking for 10 million to go to a country that is not our country because we're both from Cyprus, but not even from Greece. And we're here to transform an industry that has never been transformed in this side of the world. Now, after that, thankfully, Greece started getting in a little bit of a better shape through time. And we obviously had a track record. We had good reinsurance partners, Munich and Swiss. We started showing good numbers. So we were fortunate enough, other than the brave few family offices in the beginning, to start getting more institutional money. So through the years, we had Third Point, we had the Power Corporation of Canada, the IFC, the EBRD. In total, we raised 56 million, combination of equity and debt. We're now doing another round. We're very close to... I guess we are break-even already across the board, including all the technology investment that we've made through the years. So we're in a very good shape now for our next leap. And now we're fundraising as we speak. And I think now it's more the private equity-ish or late-stage kind of investors that are looking at us. And I think that's a very exciting time for the company. Insurance is not a global play, just to put that on the table. Something we love the Lemonade guys, but we disagree with them on a few things, with John Peters in particular, on the global domination play. I think when you look at insurance, it's probably a regional play. Even if you look at some of the global powerhouses like Allianz, they grew through acquisitions. They did not grow organically in every market. Lemonade has been in Europe for four years now. They have about four, four and a half million in revenue in GWP. I don't think you can just come with an app, with an approach and saying, it, it would be arrogant of us to say, we're going to go to Nigeria from Greece and capture the market. So you need regional local players. And I think that's the way we see it. So for the next five years, we have a very specific target of which markets to go in, minimum 5% market share in every market, and what we aspire to be before either we float or at that point in time, we'll consider our options. So you mentioned the region, and we're talking about Europe, of course. I've had the good fortune of talking to a number of European founders over the last year, thinking of people like Alex Proth from Conto, Christo Borisa from uh, Payhawk, this amazing unicorn from Bulgaria, and many others. And, and we always talk about kind of the advantages and disadvantages of building in Europe. And I know it's a little bit unfair because you've never built a company in the US or China or Brazil, but still you get visibility. So, you know, maybe share a bit about what are some of the advantages of building in Europe and also what you wish was different. 
I think entrepreneurs around the world and through Endeavor in particular, both Emilius and I have had the privilege and we've been lucky enough to speak to many, many different entrepreneurs around the world. I think entrepreneurs, each one of us follows their own journey and they have their own challenges, right? I think the challenge of building business in the US, especially Silicon Valley, in a much more competitive market with very smart people around you, losing talents to better players or to people willing to bid you out and things like that probably is very high on your list. When you look at markets like Greece, we're an employer of choice here. We have 50 developers. It's very difficult to see them leaving for a local competitor. So again, you compare the problems that we would face versus the problems that somebody would face in other markets like the US or more advanced markets, I would say, I think they're very different in their nature. Now, obviously you have, when you're building a regulated business like insurance or a bank, you need to make sure that the regulation is there and it's set in stone and it's black and white. So it's not a gray zones or anything like that. And that was probably the biggest challenge that we had to build to make sure that we're comfortable with the regulatory framework. Once you do that, understanding what are the risks that you face with. One of the exercises that we've done with the team here was when there was a discussion about Greece exiting the Eurozone and we sat down and we said, what happens if, and we tried to do all the sensitivity analysis around that to inform our board and shareholders and whatever, we actually realized that although ethically we never wanted Greece to exit the Eurozone because we think it's the right thing and Greece needs to belong in Europe and we're very much believers of that, capitalistically speaking, it would have been the best thing ever for us because your liabilities or your claims would have been converted to drachma, which would significantly deteriorate versus the capital that you already have in euros, which is a much higher currency. So again, when you think about entrepreneurs in parts of the world like ours, I think the problem set is very different. It's less about competition and competitive powers. It's more about can you make it and can you survive in a much more uncertain environment? Lessons that I would tell to myself five, six, ten years ago would be it will always take longer than you think. It will always cost you more in terms of frustration and capital. But once you set up in this side of the world a business like Alas Direct, you are much more entrenched than if you are in a much more competitive side of the world. So I think those are the key learnings that we had in building a business here rather than on the US or the UK. Part of the benefit of what you just mentioned, having a, a very competitive workforce and, and a very competitive environment in Silicon Valley is that these people have worked at past startups and they know what it is to operate in a fast-paced environment, a fast-growing company. In markets like Greece, and I've seen this also in places like Latin America, that's not really the case. You have to train people. How has been that part of the business, bringing people on board, keeping them laser focused on the mission. Maybe let's talk a bit about that. Look, there was this database, kind of an interactive database that was distributed by Sequoia a few weeks ago, showing different geographies and where they rank well in AI and technical skills and all that. Greece, we've been blessed with some very good engineering talent. I think what we haven't really been trained, as you said, is the experience of having worked elsewhere. So companies like ourselves, companies like Workable or Viva that was recently sold to JP Morgan, we had to learn the hard way, which is you make mistakes, you fail, you get, fall down seven, you get back eight, and you try to learn, right? So for us, reading a bunch of books about how more advanced companies have done so, you're a little bit in the blind. That being said, because you're one of the first movers, one of the established players here, 
you are considered an employer of choice, uh, best workplace, this and that and the other. And you have the benefit of a lot of people generally want to live in a market like Greece, in a place like Greece, just because of the weather, because of the people, the Mediterranean lifestyle, especially post-COVID. I think we've been quite fortunate that you have a lot more loyalty in the people that you have. So back to your point, we have to learn things the hard way. It's part of our culture to fail fast. And we do realize that our people here, you cannot just treat them as an investment with capital and that's it. But you have to think a little bit more about career progression, about guest speakers, inspiring them and all that stuff that in other markets, maybe you don't need as much. But a lot of it here is you're building a professional football team. You have to be encouraging and shouting and rooting and at the same time, or be both a coach and a player at the same time. So Alexis, before I let you go, and then by the way, you've made me want to be in Greece right now during the summer. (laughs) But before I let you go, what's next? I think you've kind of given us a hint of what's to come, but what's your vision? What's next for the next few years? Look, I think for us, we want to be the leading digital first insurance company in this region. And when I say this region is these underserved markets that are ignored by the big guys. When you speak to most of the strategics right now and you say, hey, what do you think about Greece, about Romania, about Portugal, whatever, most of these guys will say, yeah, 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 let's talk about it in five years because right now I'm busy with whatever bigger market. So that's a huge opportunity for us. There's waves of capital coming in and out of these markets. And if you catch the wave right, you can make disproportionate returns. So from our side is focus on continuing building a platform, continuing expanding to new markets, be respectful of the idiosyncrasies of every market, especially with regards to distribution. In some cases, it's aggregators. In some cases, it's brokers. Figure out what is your real edge and what you do. And if you can do that, can you see Elas Direct being close to a billion euros in premia in the next five, six, seven years from now? With a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, I think we'll get there. And when you look at that, again, we do feel the duty in a market like Greece to pass on and pass back a lot of the knowledge or the expertise or a lot of the people that we leave at Last Direct by then will go start their own businesses and all that. So we do see a mini PayPal mafia kind of effect being done at a micro level. And I think both for Emilius and myself, this is very, very important to us. We don't just want to build a business which is here for the next 30 years, whether we are on board or not, that's a different story. But for the next 30 years, but we actually want to be a case study or a role model of a company that was set up in very, very difficult macroeconomic environment and managed to create, as some of our investors say, Israeli technology at a fraction of the cost. And from then on, have gone against the big guys and managed to earn the place in history. So it sounds like you love to get involved and mentor future generations of founders. No, we, we've done that with the Milos many times, and we've in, both invested as angels in close to 20 companies now. And through Endeavor, I think Endeavor is a fantastic platform for people that want to engage with the entrepreneurial community in these markets. So for us, anybody listening to the podcast that happens to be in Athens, they want to drop by, we're always very open to it. So just find us on LinkedIn, drop us an email, and let's meet for a coffee or a beer. And clearly, anybody looking to start their own business, I think there's a lot of positive karma in giving it back with any entrepreneur. And of course, we're delighted to do it. Literally next door, we have an office that we give out to new startups starting from scratch. And again, we've been quite fortunate to be helped by a lot of mentors and advisors through the years. And I think you want to keep paying that forward. Love it. Love it. Well, Alexis, can't thank you enough for joining. I'm delighted to hear of the continued success of Alas Direct and hope that 
Our next conversation is in Greece, you know, when I'm there next time. Would love to have you here. Thank you, Miguel. Always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Alexis from Elas Direct. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>